Turn, if you would, to Proverbs chapter 10. I had someone tell me they'd been gone for two weeks, and they came back, and we're still on chapter 10. I tried real hard last week, and you all would not let me finish this chapter. Today we're going to finish it, or at least we're not coming back. We got somewhere down about verse 23. So we'll read 23 and then pick up at uh, lesson 20, at verse 24 for today's lesson. A fool finds pleasure in evil conduct, but a man of understanding delights in wisdom. It is this idea that our emotional response to good or evil needs to be trained by the Word of God in such a way that we desire to do the things of God. We train ourselves in godliness such that the things of God are not, ooh, I have to eat the broccoli. The things of God are the delight of our heart. The wise, the man of understanding, delights in wisdom. What the wicked dreads will overtake him, what the righteous desire will be granted. If you think for a moment about your life, my life, each of us have desires and each of us have things that we dread. And I don't know about you, I could probably sit down and write out my list You know, I desire certain things for my family. I desire certain things for my job. I desire certain things for my life. And I live in dread of certain other things happening. I mean, it's this running joke that if one of the kids calls me, there's usually something wrong. Because if things are going well, so I I kind of live in dread when I get phone calls. Because it's usually not... We have things in our minds that we desire, and we have things in our minds that we dread. The proverb tells us that what the wicked dreads will overtake them. It is interesting, this idea of overtake them. It's like the wicked are running down a path, and there's something pursuing them. You know, it's, it's your worst image of a bad horror movie where the individual is running through the dark woods and they hear footsteps behind them. They know something is following them. And the implication of the verse is that what the wicked think is bad back there really is bad back there and it really is going to catch up with them at some point. Remember, justice will be done, if not in this world, then in the world to come. We do not scoff at the holiness and righteousness of God and get away with it. What the wicked dread is right behind them. And sometimes they have a sense that it's there. Sometimes they don't have a Sometimes they're oblivious to the reality of what is chasing them. But the verse tells us that it's going to catch them. What the wicked dread is going to overtake them. But what the righteous desire will be granted. Now, there's a couple of interesting things about this verse. What does, what do the righteous desire? Come on. The will of God. You stole all my thunder with one answer right there. (laughs) If you remember, and there's no reason you would remember, but about five years ago we worked through the book of John. Y'all do remember the lessons I taught five years ago. Do you remember what I taught last week? I don't. And there's this passage, this verse that states that you can pray for whatever you want and God will give it to you. And we have this long conversation. Well, what if I want 
something immoral? What if I want to have my way above anything else? What if I want to be the center of the universe? Is God going to answer that? And the answer is obviously no. Because the verse talks about when we are in the will of God, whatever we ask, we will receive. And we talked at the time that there is one prayer that God will always, always answer affirmatively. And you know what that is? Thy will be done. We have this belief that, oh, what the righteous desires will be granted. Well, I'm righteous because I'm better than most of you. I know you. Okay? I'm better than most of my neighbors. I'm better than most of my coworkers. So what I desire will be granted to me, irregardless of what it is I desire. When the reality is the righteousness produces certain desires and to the extent that we desire that which is immoral it demonstrates that we are still falling short of the righteousness of God look back to the last verse but a man of understanding delights in wisdom what does the righteous desire one thing is wisdom. So if you, considering yourself righteous, desire foolishness, what is that an indicator of? Is God going to give that to you? No. It is an indicator that you might not be as righteous as you think or thought you were. Yes? They are two aspects of the same person, yes. In the book of Proverbs, we have the people who are following the path of wisdom. And we call them the people who fear God, the people who are men of understanding. There's all kinds of names. In the same way, there's all kinds of names for the people who are on the path of foolishness. We have the mocker, we have the scoffer, we have a variety of different names. They are all aspects of a particular direction that you're going. So the man of understanding is with reference to his thought processes. The righteousness is with respect to his actions and how he is living his life. And the two are not distinct, different, but they are different ways of looking at an individual. I'm not sure that I could conceive in my mind a person who had no understanding of the things of God following the things of God. So understanding is necessary for righteousness in the same way that righteousness is necessary for understanding, and they all feed on themselves. We see this throughout the book of Proverbs, and we see it through the Scripture in general, where righteousness is what allows you to learn more about the will of God, which is what allows you to be more righteous, which is what allows you to learn more about the will of God, you get the picture. We call that the virtuous spiral. In the same way that sin leads us down a path to more sin, which leads us down a, which is the negative spiral. So it is a good question. In one sense, I am equating the two. Yes. But I recognize that they're different ways of looking at the same person what the righteous desire will be granted the righteous are those who desire the things of God and what they desire will be granted to them long pause if one of you were gutsy you would argue this with me but you're not going to because because I just chastised you and told you I was going to make it through chapter 10 no matter what, right? What the wicked dreads will overtake him, what the righteous desires. So each of us has this list of dreading and desire, and each of us will get, well, depends which path we're on. Now, once again, 
recognizing the reality that ultimately, and the word is ultimately, justice will be done. Ultimately, the righteous get what they desire, which is heaven. Ultimately, the wicked get what they dread, which is in fact hell. Between now and then, we get glimpses of both. We get glimpses of heaven, or we get glimpses of hell. When the storm has swept by, the wicked are gone, but the righteous stand firm forever. This is a direct proverb that matches exactly, exactly with Christ's teachings at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. You remember that in Matthew chapter 7, where you deal with the last, I don't know, four or five verses of the Sermon on the Mount, where Christ says, the intelligent guy, the godly guy, the smart guy, to use, to use the words of Proverbs, the wise individual, is the wise builder who builds his house on a foundation of rock. And when the storms of life come, his house stands. The foolish individual is the one who hears these words and does not put them into practice and builds their house on sand. When the storms come, there is a crash, and it is a great crash. And everything that he has built collapses. Notice that it does not say if the storms come. It says when the storms come. We sometimes think that if I'm the righteous person, the storms won't come to my life. I won't have the difficulties. I won't have the tsunamis. I won't have the relationships problems. That I won't have any problems. That's what we think. All God promises us is that if we are living a righteous life, if we are living a life that takes the word of God and puts it into practice, that we can build a life on a foundation that will stand even when the storms come. And that's exactly what this proverb is referring to. When the storm has swept by, the wicked are gone, but the righteous stand firm forever. The storms are coming, or you've already been through the storms. I am old enough, you are old enough, to have faced many storms in life. Difficulties that you didn't anticipate, you certainly didn't want. And sometimes we do well, and sometimes we lose sight. We are like Peter. We get out of the boat and start walking on the water, and all of a sudden our mind goes, I think I'm walking on water. And we take our eyes off Christ, and we look at the water, and you know what? We're walking on water, and people don't walk on water. Bloop. Into the water we go. The question is, having heard the word, and I might add, none of you have the excuse, okay? You've heard it. There may be someone out there who hasn't heard it. You're not it. The only option you have is to hear the word and to put it into practice or to hear the word and, eh, I think I'll go watch the basketball game. Who won the basketball game last night? Kansas did? That's, that's actually what I thought. I don't think Baylor's playing to Oh, the women are playing. So we lose sight of the eternal reality, and we focus on the things of this world. We focus on the storm and not the master who can calm the storm. 
That's the difference. Now, don't get me wrong. If Esther was sitting right here, she would turn to me and say, but that's not easy. And I would go, you're right. It's not easy. I can sit here and I can read the scripture and I can look at the scripture and I can, oh yeah, I can do that. No problem. But when the storms are hitting, that's when we need to look at Christ. That's when we need to do what we need to do. When the storm has swept by, the wicked are gone. We can talk about you know, what gone means. There's a country western song about that. All the different ways we use them. Hmm? No, that's not it. <laughs> the, the woman leaves and she says she's gone. And the guy says, what kind of gone is she? Is she gone for good or gone for the day? Gone for this or <laughs> gone with a good in front of... I don't know what it is. I don't... Oh, I do listen to that kind of stuff. <laughs> the wicked are gone. We're going to see in a moment. Um, verse 30. The righteous will never be uprooted, but the wicked will not remain in the land. To a Jewish community reading this proverb at the time of Solomon or later, even if they were in captivity later, the number one promise is being rooted in the land. And to be uprooted from that land would have been a horrible, wretched thing. When the storm sweeps by, the wicked are gone. Where did they go? Well, ultimately, we know they go to hell. But, you know, they're just gone. Their influence is gone. Their impact on the community is gone. Their relationships are gone. They're just gone. For all practical purposes. But the righteous stand firm forever. The righteous stand firm. Do the righteous stand firm because they, in and of themselves, are real strong? No, they stand firm because their foundation is built on a rock. Who, what, is the rock? It is Jesus Christ. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord. The foundation, what the life, what the house, what the structure is built upon will determine the outcome of the storm. As vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is a sluggard to those who send him. You can remember that one. Just keep that in the back of your mind. To be quite honest, I have no idea what vinegar does to the teeth. I'm real familiar with smoke in the eyes, okay? I've built my share of campfires. I've stood downwind on my share of campfires. I know what smoke does to your eyes. What does vinegar do to your teeth? Huh? Kind of set your teeth on edge? What is that, like bad wine or something? I... Huh? It corrodes them? It's an acid. I figured it did something to it. I just don't have a lot of firsthand experience with it. <laughs> no, I never gargled vinegar growing up. Now, I did one time. I had a sore throat, and my grandmother, bless her sweetheart, said, take a spoonful of Vaseline. And I said, it says there on the label for external use only. And she says, but they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> now, I tell you, I was an obedient child, and I took that spoonful. Anyway, 
It made my hair fall out. <laughs> I, have no, I wasn't going to complain about it. He asked if it's cured my sore throat, and I said, well, I wasn't going to complain about it. As vinegar to the teeth, smoke to the eyes. They're irritants. They just, ah, they drive you crazy. That's what it like, is like to send a sluggard to do something. You take the sluggard and you say, go build me a fence. You get the sluggard and you say, take out the trash. You get the sluggard and you tell him to do anything for you. And you wait. And you wait. And you wait. And you get annoyed. And you get annoyed. And you start rubbing your eyes because they hurt. They are irritated, and you are irritated because this individual is a sluggard, and he or she is not doing what needs to be done. As we say at work, there are certain people you do not want in your critical path. The critical path is the path of things that has to be done to accomplish a certain task, and there are certain people you do not want in that path. And the sluggard is one of them. Who is the sluggard? We've actually had a lesson about this. Come on, this is easy. Come on. Don't be sluggards. <laughs> Lazy person. It is the person who doesn't care enough to exert any effort at all to accomplish any task. It's like it's an affront to them to have to work. There's something basically wrong with the universe that is requiring me to exert effort at this point to do something I don't want to do. The universe needs to change for me. Guess what? The universe is not going to change for you. Sorry. We talked, and this was several, 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 several weeks ago when we talked about the sluggard, that in the medieval world, they liked dividing up, you know, the seven deadly sins and the seven virtues. And in the list of the seven deadly sins was one called sloth, sluggard, laziness. And in this list, most medieval theologians put pride at the top of the list. Pride is the cause of a lot of problems. But some theologians put sloth at the top of the list. And the reason they did that is because if you are lazy, it doesn't matter what other problems you have in your life, you're not going to do anything about them. You understand? I'm too lazy to deal with my pride. I'm too lazy to deal with the other sins in my life. Why bother? I think I'll go watch TV instead. This verse is really not so much about the sluggard. It is about the individual who sends the sluggard. And the observation is, you're going to get irritated about it. You're going to get irritated if you expect this individual to change. Now, I will throw in a caveat at this point. The book of Proverbs is full of pictures of particular kinds of people. We had a brief discussion just a moment about that. This person is the sluggard. This person is the mocker. And sometimes the impression is, once a sluggard, always a sluggard, always will be a sluggard. The reality is, that's probably true. But, but, the grace of God does work. The grace of God does draw people to repentance. 
The grace of God does work in people's lives and change character so that the sluggard can reform. But it takes the grace of God. Now, what does that grace of God look like in the life of the sluggard? It usually involves hunger. <laughs> That's the biblical answer. Starving. When was it that the prodigal son finally figured out, you know, I'm not exactly living the best life in the world. When he was down eating what was left over after feeding the pigs. God disciplines us by our appetites, by our needs to draw us to him. So, is grace giving the sluggard food or is grace, well, you know the next one. Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is a sluggard to those who send him. It just irritates you. Just recognize it. One of the good things that comes out of the studying of the book of Proverbs is not just applying labels to people. We do that anyway. But it is learning to discern the character of people so that we begin to understand why am I always irritated when I ask coworker John to do something? Maybe I'm irritated because coworker John never gets anything done. Ever. Hmm. The fear of the Lord adds length to life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. Believe it or not, we actually did that verse last week. We're not going to do it again. We don't have time to repeat ourselves. <gasps> Actually, we'll repeat ourselves a little bit. We had a discussion last week, and I'm not going to go through the whole discussion, about length of life, shortness of life, etc., etc. The first observation was that, you know, if you had the best scientific experiment in the realm of sociology you could ever do and you took everyone that had ever lived and you had graded them on their righteousness quotient go figure and then mapped that against the length of their lives we could prove categorically that those who fear the Lord live 6.4 years longer than those who don't fear the Lord and by golly, mathematically, we could prove this verse correct. Well, first off, there's no way to do that. There's no way to quantitatively measure righteousness that I know of. I know indicators. I know things that will indicate whether an individual is righteous or not. But we have this horrible tendency of judging people by outward behavior and God has this amazing tendency of looking at the condition of our heart funny how that works but what I do believe what I do believe because of this verse is that it is always better for the goodness of your life to live a life that fears God. And it is always worse, always worse, to live a life of wickedness. And I do believe that while there are righteous people who do die young, we discussed this last week, under the label of the providence of God, where God in his providence allows Stephen to be stoned 
even though Stephen was a righteous man, because that was used in God's providence to spread the church to all of the known world. God will work things according to his will. That while God in his providence may dictate that the righteous die young, in general, a righteous life produces a better life. Whether it's avoiding certain vices that bring death and destruction with them, whether it produces a lessening of stress that produces medical issues, whether it produces, we could talk about this at length. There are books, literally books, being written about what stress and worry and all of that does to your physical health. The wicked life will be cut short. The fear of the Lord adds length to your life. Once again, what does it mean to fear the Lord? It is to live a life of righteous awe, fear, that God is watching every that you do now that scares the bejeebers out of us it's big brother watching us that's bad doesn't he trust us no well hmm God is a righteous God who knows the condition of our heart it's like I've said in here before you know there are certain TV shows that I might not watch if I knew my father was about to walk into the room. Hmm. Question. Observation. Why was I watching shows that I didn't want to watch if my father... What in our life would change if we lived our life in recognition that God was in fact everywhere and we were hiding nothing from him? Hmm. That's true. He's watching us in love, and he's wa- he wants our best, but he knows what is the best. In our modern relativistic world, I want to define the best as what I want. If I desire 42 wives, then I expect the world to accept the fact that I want 42 wives. And I want God to honor that because God is loving and he wants me to be happy. Now, as an aside, I question whether having 42 wives would make anybody happy. (laughs) Sorry. We can look at the life of Solomon to find out what caused, what what happened as a result. Right. That's right. But the world, the world today, the Christian world today, is full of people who are teaching God wants you to be happy. And if divorcing your wife makes you happy, God loves you. If having sex with someone of the same gender makes you happy, God loves you and wants you. I know that's not what you're saying. I know that's not what you're saying. I know it. But I also know that in a relativistic world, we have taken the love of God and used it to believe that God is indifferent to what we do as long as it makes us happy. And the reality is that God loves us enough that he is not going to let us be happy until we are following his righteousness. There is a connection between those that the modern world despises. And that's not too strong of a word. There is a way that seems right to men 
and the end thereof is destruction. And you can put whatever religious labels you want on top of it. Back to the TV show. I always knew my father loved me. And I did not want to disappoint my father. So that's why there were certain shows that I didn't watch if I knew my... And the question is, if I would disappoint my father if he were in the room and I was watching it, why would I watch it when he wasn't in the room and disappoint him in absentia? That is the question. And our Heavenly Father is always in the room. We think, we think that we're hiding things from God. I close the door of the bedroom, I lock the door, and God doesn't know what I'm doing. We are fools when we believe that. (sighs) Y'all are trying to make me not finish this chapter. The prospect of the righteous is joy, but the hopes of the wicked come to nothing. Two different words here, prospect. What does the word prospect mean in this context? Pardon? Outlook. In fact, it's an outlook that has a reasonable expectation. If I say someone has good prospects to play college football... I'm saying that person has the ability, they have the skill, they have the physical attributes necessary. They have an outlook that looks good. Hopes. What does it say for the bad one? Read the whole verse. That's interesting, because mine uses hopes in the second one. (laughs) The prospect of the righteous is joy, but the hopes of the wicked come to nothing. What does yours say? The hope of the righteous is blessed. Okay. Okay, What, what, what translation is that? Where's Van when we need him to get the real Bible? Yes, ma'am. So the good people are going after something. The bad people are going after something. What happens to the something that the good people are going after? It produces joy. There is celebration. But remember, back to what we, where we started this lesson, the desires of the righteous, they are pursuing the things of God. They are pursuing what God wants to honor. They are doing those things that God is to put it in very human terms, is sitting there cheering them on, saying, do that, and we'll have a party at the end of it. That's what the righteous are doing. The hopes of the wicked come to nothing. They're in vain is the nice biblical word to use. We all know people. We all know people with grand plans and schemes about how they're going to rule the world, not literally, but some piece of it, and nothing comes of it. Nothing. It is just vapor. But what the righteous desire, what the righteous seeks, will be given to them, and it will produce joy. The way of the Lord is refuge for the righteous, but it is the ruin of those who do evil. This verse is interesting because if you look at the clause, the way of the Lord, that way is then applied to two separate groups of people. It's not like 
the way of the Lord is good for the righteous, and the way of the devil is bad for the wicked. No, it's the way of the Lord. The way of the Lord is a refuge for the righteous. What is a refuge? It's where we go when we need protection. It is where we go when we need security. That is what the way of the Lord is. Walking on the path of righteousness gives the righteous security. But that same path, when followed by the wicked, accomplishes what? Nothing. All it does is condemns them because it shows they can't do it. I've always thought it was curious. The best words in the Bible and the worst words in the Bible are the same thing, and it is simply this. Prepare to meet your Maker. If you are righteous, there is no greater promise. There is nothing greater than to see God. The beatific vision, the vision of who God is. There is nothing greater. But when the Bible wants to punish the wicked, they give them the same vision. Because to them, all it is is condemnation. The way of the Lord is a refuge for the righteous. The righteous are on the path and it gives them security. But it is the ruin of those who do evil. To me, it's kind of like, if you remember in Pilgrim's Progress, where the main character, Christian, has gone over the gate and he's on the path. And then all of a sudden, somebody else joins him in the path. And they said, did you go over the gate? No, I just kind of walked around and... They were, they were on the path, but they hadn't come by way of Christ. They were just in the church congregation, meandering along because, hey, this is where the cool people are. And it did them no good. It did them no good. The righteous will never be uprooted, but the wicked will not remain in the land. We mentioned this just a while ago. The idea in the Jewish mind of being in the land is the ultimate in happiness and reward. And to be uprooted, to have no roots, to have no connection to anything behind you, is the sign of a desolate life. It is, in fact, the prodigal son going to the faraway country, going away from the land, the roots that he had. The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but a perverse tongue will be cut out. The lips of the righteous know what is fitting, but the mouth of the wicked only what is perverse. We end with two verses about our speech. This chapter actually has about eight or nine verses that deal with what comes out of our mouth. Why do you think it spends so much time talking about what comes out of our mouth? Because that's what's in your heart. Isn't that what Jesus talked about when they complained? When the Pharisees complained, your disciples don't wash their hands before they do. And first off, they weren't talking about hygiene. They were talking about a ceremonial washing that supposedly accomplished some magical incantation. Hygiene is always in order, by the way. But Jesus says, it's not what comes into your mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out of your mouth. We have a lot of words that come out of our mouths today. Some of them are good. Some of them are not so good. Some of them are kind of biting, satirical, jab, 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 jab. I think I told you one time that uh, 
I spent two and a half, two hours behind a locked door arguing with a pro project lead that I had that we in the South don't insult people for the fun of it. He was from New Jersey, and he goes, how do you talk to people then? I mean, literally, that's what he said. And I said, in the South, we don't do that. We just don't. What's the old joke? In the South, you are kind and polite right up to the moment that you kill them. But that's a whole different story. Our words are an indicator of the condition of our heart. Yeah, like a lot of things, we can fake it for a while. We can put on our mask. We can put on our verbal mask for a while. But ultimately, that what comes out of our mouth is an indicator of the condition of our heart. The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom. Now, I will not ask for a show of hands. How many of you spoke wisdom this week? It is interesting because sometimes we do. We do. If you've got kids, if you've got grandkids, if you have great-grandkids... If you have co-workers, uh, wisdom needs to be on our lips. But I would contend that it's probably on our lips a fraction of the time that it ought to be on our lips. We need to share wisdom. And we need to share the gospel, which is the beginning of wisdom. The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom. But a perverse tongue will be cut out. That's pretty uh, strong imagery there. But it is actually the same imagery from the verse in front of it. I mean the first before it. Being cut out of the land. This idea of worthlessness. Back to verse 28 when we talked about the hopes of the wicked becoming nothing, becoming vain, becoming worthless. That is what the words of the wicked become. It is as if they didn't even have a tongue. They might as well not even bother speaking because all that comes out of it is blah, 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 blah. The lips of the righteous know what is fitting. Now that's important. You know? There is a time to speak and a time to be silent. There is a time to talk like a prophet. And there is a time to give love and compassion. Just go read the life of Jesus. Okay? He spoke what is fitting. He did not treat the Pharisees like he treated the woman at the well. Now, in actual fact, was the woman at the well as wicked as the Pharisees? Probably. I mean, they all had pretty... But it was different, and he knew it. He knew that her heart needed something right then. And he was going to give her living water. The Pharisees, get away from me, you brood of vipers. I had a chat with one of my children just a couple of weeks ago. I may have mentioned this, you know, the verse about casting our pearls before swine. What does that mean? Well, this is what that means. It is knowing the situation and knowing that if I share the gospel in this situation, it is going to do no good. Now, we need boldness to share the gospel whenever the Spirit moves us to share the gospel. Most of us are just cowards. And that's not being fitting. That's just, okay. Most of us are worried about upsetting somebody by telling them about the gospel. That's a whole different story. But there comes a time when sharing the gospel, it is obvious, obvious that it is doing no good. All it is doing is heaping more condemnation on them. It's worthless. That is learning to know what is fitting. When do I need to take the child and really wear them down verbally? And when do I need to speak softly? 
It's all done by love. But some things are fitting to some occasion. If the house is on fire, you don't say to your child, let's talk about whether we should vacate the premises rapidly. Let's, what do you think about this? Let's have a discussion. No, you say, get out of the house. Because that is what is fitting for that particular situation. Unfortunately, much of the world today is in a house that's on fire. And we are sitting there going, how do the drapes make you feel? What do you think about the color of the carpet? A larger roof wouldn't have burned as fast. And we don't recognize that the fitting word may be repent because judgment is coming. The lips of the righteous know what is fitting, but the mouth of the wicked only what is perverse. I have actually known people who, whatever the situation, they're going to say something stupid, something ironic, probably something dirty. Because, well, that's just what they know. That's just what they do. Everything is a joke. Everything is something to be mocked. And that's why the book of Proverbs talks about the mocker. The person who just mocks at everything. It isn't fitting. It is never fitting. But it is usually not fitting in the situations in which they speak. We made it to the end of chapter 10, and we are only two minutes late. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that each of us, that each of us would pursue righteousness above all else. Give us your grace that we may seek you in everything that we do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.